You're listening to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Iman Lau, and I'm a communications officer at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Today, Dr. Jack Mintz joins me as we discuss Western alienation, the idea of a grand bargain, and Alberta's economy. Dr. Mintz is an MLI fellow and president's fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, which also just so happens to be my alma mater. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. How are you today? Very good, and thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's always our pleasure. Let's dive right into this. So I'm from Alberta, and it's been interesting times in Alberta, to put it mildly. We've seen a more significant impact of Western alienation and the rise of separatist sentiment again in Alberta, and you have written extensively on Western alienation. What would you say are the major political events or public policies that have catalyzed Western alienation and separatist sentiment we're seeing again today? The major event, I think, of pipeline blockages that occurred earlier on, you know, the lack of pipeline approvals, which actually started to begin with Keystone XL, Obama government tying that up prior to 2015, and then finally killing it off, actually, in, in 2015 with the announcement by the State Department. They would not approve it, and it didn't really give a very good argument, given that there were studies that were done that just simply said for environmental reasons, but various studies have shown that, that issue wasn't critical, given that oil would be coming from other places anyway. So the question is, what's the net increase in the emissions that might be involved? And, and I think that was really the start. But I think it was also the various you know, issues that came up in Canada, problems of trying to get TMX Trans Mountain Pipeline built to the West, uh, the cancellation of the Northern Gateway Project, when the federal liberals brought in a tanker ban that particularly applied to bitumen and not, not, to, not necessarily to other things, but again, with very little scientific evidence to say you know, why that should should happen. There was also feeling that goalposts were moving on the regulatory side. This happened with Canada East pipeline proposed by TransCanada at that time. Now it's called uh, TCE. But it was a, a, a pipeline that would have taken oil to Irving Refinery in, in New Brunswick and was objected to by Quebec. But also, you know, there were, again, changes in the regulatory system along the way that finally the proponent decided that it's just too risky to spend any more money on, on this proposal. And so there's a, you know, deep feeling in Alberta about not getting any, any help on the regulatory side. And then Bill C-69 came along that changed the regulatory system that the oil and gas industry particularly objected to as saying that it was going to create a much more complex approval process. They, they would have been happy with a two-part process. Uh, the first one, trying to deal with the political issues, getting them out of the way, in a sense, that would be relatively quick, and then dealing with more of the technical issues in a second stage. But instead, the bill was broadened, actually, so many different criteria to be included for evaluation of a project and potential stoppages along the way and various other things that the industry felt would be far too risky for anyone to try to make a proposal. So all those things, I think, contributed to Western alienation, particularly after the oil price route in 2014 happened, which, of course, is not the federal government's fault or any part of Canada's fault. There was a global issue that, that occurred. But the fact that Albertans could see that investment was going down to the United States, shale gas and, and shale oil industry was building up even more in the U.S. despite lower prices. There was investments going around the world anyway. And yes, there were climate change policies that were being adopted by other countries. Uh, 
even in Norway, which is probably the, the poster child of, of various climate change policies, especially for a resource-based country, but at the same time approving projects and moving ahead with projects in the North Sea. So so I think Albertans see all this and they just see that they've had a federal government that has been not sympathetic to the province and the rest of Canada are not being very sympathetic, despite the fact that Alberta contributes roughly $20 billion a year to the rest of Canada through the federal budget in the sense of paying more taxes than it, than, uh, it gets in federal expenditures in the province. And so those things, I think, have uh, all contributed to Western alienation, uh, particularly in Alberta and also in Saskatchewan, uh, where similar feelings are, are quite strongly felt. So I guess tying back into the oil prices, we had seen that happen in 2014. And now the oil prices suffered a historic drop due to OPEC's collapse talks and a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how this will affect Alberta's economy and also affect Western alienation? Well, there's uh, nothing worse Contributing to stress and alienation as a, as a poor economy and obviously hit on oil prices is going to have a major impact on Alberta and Saskatchewan and also Newfoundland and Labrador. But in the case of, of Alberta, I think uh, it's just viewed as a, just another hammer. And so they're going to be looking at the federal government for support coming out of its uh, fiscal stimulus uh, and the budget uh, that's going to be forthcoming. I think if that support is not coming, I think sense of Western alienation will really deepen very quickly in, in the province province is still contributing a net surplus to the rest of Canada, and yet getting nothing back and nothing in support would be a major, major problem, I think. So I'm hoping the federal government will be helping playing a role in Alberta and actually the other two major oil provinces, but also you can include BC in terms of natural gas, that they will come forth with some special packages just for the resource-based economy. But we also have to admit, you know, the, the, the coronavirus, which has impacted on Chinese demand and, and has led to a significant contraction in, in China uh, over the past couple of months, which they may start getting out of as the incidence of, of the disease has been slowing down. But we're now starting to see Europe locked down, North America locked down. So you're, you're seeing a major global recession taking place, which, is, which weakens all commodity prices, both mining, oil and gas, and also we've seen that with aluminum and steel prices. So that affects large parts of Canada. And I think the federal government is going to be facing a, a situation in which they have to undertake some major stimulus uh, as part, part of the package, which will help not only Alberta and some of the other provinces, uh, but, but just generally the whole uh, country as a whole, as we're going to be dealing with a, a relatively rough 2020. But the issues are really accentuated for the resource provinces because of this very significant decline in oil prices, which really hits three of the provinces much, even much harder than the other provinces. So federal government, I think, will need to be responsive uh, to those things. Another MLI senior fellow, Philip Cross, had gone on CTV News and stated that, you know, we know what happens when the oil prices drop by 30%, we can predict. But when a virus shuts down a third of a major global economy like Italy, it's hard to predict. So it's very uncertain times at the moment. Yeah, I should I should also add, you know, it's also uncertain even in terms of this uh, Russian-Saudi price war. So I've been trying to uh, read up on it because the question is, is that going to be short-lasting or, or long-lasting? There was an attempt to have an agreement for Saudi Arabia and co-opting uh, Russia to be part of, in a sense, to be part of OPEC and restricting supply to uh, help keep the price of, of oil up and because of the coronavirus. It was uh, weakening oil prices up to that point as well. 
and demand had actually weakened uh, up to almost 4 million barrels per day out of 100 million, and so, you know, 101 million barrels per day. So I think there was a real concern to try to try to forestall further price reductions uh, by the Saudis. The Russians didn't want to do it. Uh, there's been various reasons that have been argued. One argument being that the oil companies themselves in, in Russia didn't want to see further curtailment or any, any reduction in production. There's also been uh, an argument that Russia wanted to go after the the uh, U.S. shale industry, particularly they were angry with Trump for trying to stop Nord Stream, which is a major pipeline, being a gas pipeline to be built into uh, Germany to supply Europe with more natural gas, while the Americans would like to see more LNG sold to the market. And of course, that still doesn't quite explain why Russia would actually engage a price war when it's obviously going to be hurt itself by it. It's sort of like cutting off your nose to, to spite your face. So it may be possible, and even it's been even remarked today that negotiations haven't been stopped, and that Russia and, and, and OPEC may get back together. Uh, the question: Will they get back together in June? Will they get back together in April? And from what I understand, the oil companies are probably, or at least I would expect, that the oil companies in Russia didn't expect this major price war to erupt, and are probably not very happy, and they're pushing the Putin to try to resolve it. But we'll have to see. It's very unclear, but. Uh, the main point is that the longer it lasts, the more damage it's going to do to the Canadian economy, and uh, particularly the major producer economies. The, the consumers like Ontario and Quebec suffered less from a price reduction in, in oil because you know they're gasoline consumers, so they actually households will get, you know, in a sense, more real income as a result of gasoline and, and diesel and heating products and things like that. So that's going to be a benefit uh, to them. On the other hand, there are many industries, uh, both services and manufacturing, that are tied into the strength of the resource economy. And, and to the extent that the resource economy declines, uh, that will hurt those industries that are linked uh, to them. And that's not just in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland. It's also a number of them in Ontario and in Quebec. So, you know, it's a combination of things. And then, of course, if Alberta is paying and Saskatchewan and other provinces are paying less in taxes, and that just opens up the deficits for the federal government, and uh, less revenues go to other pro to the provinces, and so that puts pressure on as well. So you have a combination of things that are that are going to have to be dealt with. Recently, the Bank of Canada slashed interest rates by fifty basis points. I'm curious, what do you see that impact in Canada's economy in the short term? In the, in the short term, the you know the bank rate reduction will help people who are renewing mortgages or buying a new home or, or taking out a loan for an automobile or, uh, or other consumer durables. And it also helps businesses in terms of lower costs uh, 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 and finance, financing costs for their investment. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be necessarily the spur to the economy because I think what you're having right now is a supply shock for the economy. It's not a demand shock. And what I mean by that is with the virus, what we're seeing, as we've seen in China and now, and now Italy, and, and I think we'll see in some other countries, people are not traveling, uh, people are not going to stores. In other words, they're reducing contact as much as possible. Even companies are now cutting back workers from coming into work. Uh, in fact, I was told the other day, CIBC have told their workers to stay at home. And so those things where you try to minimize contact and everything else, you're actually cutting back the amount of work that's available. And that's what happened in China. You know, the production really dropped in China because of the fact that people were quarantined and, and as a result weren't producing anymore. So that's a supply shock. And I'm not sure that the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve reductions, and also what's happened in, in Europe, I think it helps, I think, you know, in terms of 
help buttress some of the reduction in, in demand, but I don't think it doesn't solve the supply problem. And so I think uh, what's really needed is fiscal policy and for the federal government and the provinces to uh, first maybe look at policies that help, I think, those parts of the economy and people that are affected uh, by coronavirus. You're getting restaurants that are closing or or uh, could end up bankrupt. You're getting uh, you know, a number of uh, people that may be laid off. And then you need a medical system that needs all the resources it can. And, and I think uh, the federal government and the provinces have to make sure that we have testing kits, we have hospital beds ready, uh, all sorts of uh, needs that are all going to cost money too. And so the, that's an area where the federal government may need to give money to the provinces uh, for their burgeoning uh, healthcare costs, at least on a, on a temporary basis. So I think those are the sorts of things that need to be considered as part of, of any fiscal stimulation that might take place. As I've written, we really are facing now kind of short-term issues and long-term issues. The short-term issues being coronavirus and, and, and the oil price route hopefully will be short-term, uh, although that could be longer-term too, or at least medium-term. Um, but the um, the two longer-term ones are regulatory problems vis-a-vis the resource industry. The federal government has supported responsible resource development. The provinces do. In fact, polls tend to show that Canadians support it. But the question is, what do we mean by responsible and what do we mean by resource development? And my argument is that we sign on to targets like net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, but we have no clue how we're going to get there. We don't know what the plan is. We don't know what the cost to the economy is going to be to try to reach that. And that's because we don't have a plan in the first place. And it's really more of an aspiration as a target, not not really a real one, because with current technologies, there's really no way that we could get to the 2050 objective without very serious dislocation and, and, and cost to the Canadian economy. Just about every forecast I've seen in, about energy transition, at least for the next 30 or 40 years, is that fossil fuels, uh, oil, gas, coal, and natural gas will still have to play a significant role. There's some people who have taken the view, well, to get to 2050, we must act now uh, on climate change, and therefore uh, we should stop all oil and gas development, all coal development, no more pipelines, no LNG plants. And of course, that's not what's happening worldwide. And given Canada's emissions are only 1.6% of worldwide emissions, it would seem to me we need to come to some sort of resolution between what we can accept as resource development and what would be a, probably a, a more logical path consistent with what the world is doing uh, in getting to an energy transition with, with low carbon. And that's what I call the grand bargain, which we don't have in Canada, where we need to get federal, provincial governments through an agreement. I, I don't think it should be the federal government telling the provinces what to do, but the federal government working out a, a clear agreement about what should be the path for carbon policies, uh, which could be adopted, and then also working out some sort of arrangement with First Nations, particularly with, with things that they're looking for, like self-government and land rights, that uh, is done in, in, in a way that I think enables uh, many First Nations to move ahead with resource projects that they would like to have because they know it's going to be highly beneficial to their people in terms of jobs and income and everything like that. And there are some First Nations may have different views, but uh, somehow we have to get some sort of a agreement and it may not be a uni- you know everybody agreeing to uh, a particular bargain but you know with a, just a general consensus of what we mean by responsible resource development and we're not there and and I think as a result we have completely undermined uh, investment in the resource sector uh, in this country and 
Although it's showing up in oil and gas, for example, Warren Buffett recently pulling money out of a Quebec LNG plant. But I think one has to remember this could impact on mining, it could impact on forestry and other resource uh, projects uh, done in, in Canada if we don't come to some sort of understanding of, of what we mean by responsible resource development. So just switching gears, Alberta is going through a difficult period in their economy, and there has been much discussion about balancing Alberta's budget. There is one concept that I would say it's almost sacrilegious to talk about, which is a sales tax in Alberta. And a very common sentiment in Alberta is that uh, PST stands for a political suicide tax. However, there has been some renewed interest in the sales tax. And as an economist, what are your views on a sales tax in Alberta? Well, I I think uh, one has to (laughs) differentiate between, uh, you know, what... um might be short-term versus long-term responses. So I, I, I look at tax reform as a long-term issue to be dealt with uh, for Alberta and, and not something in the short term. Right now, people are talking about sales tax uh, as a short-term response <laughs> in Alberta to the decline in resource prices. And I think that's really bizarre, given that you have an economy that is uh, being threatened right now. And the, and the last thing you would do is raise taxes uh, as opposed to uh, reducing them in in a way to stimulate the economy. So I think in the short term, it's completely illogical to look at uh, increasing sales taxes. But as a long, long run issue, I think an HST for Alberta could be a very significant change that could help the province in, in two ways. First of all, by shifting away from more harmful taxes in the economy, particularly income taxes, and and increasing reliance on a consumption tax like the HST, that could be a very pro-growth opportunity and could also create a huge tax advantage for Alberta in attracting skilled labor and capital, which it's always needed uh, over the years, given the, the importance of various uh, types of projects that need huge amounts of capital, capital-intensive projects that need significant amounts of capital in order to to fund them, whether it's petrochemical plants or, or various uh, resource development projects and that are, are pursued in the province. So I think uh, that would be a very wise move for Alberta to adopt. The other thing is that as we move uh, over the century into a new energy type model worldwide, and I'm assuming that will continue over the number of years, Alberta's oil and gas sector will be an important source of strength to the extent that we can adopt certain technologies that might allow for major carbon emissions by making use of the of the resource. And, you know, as an example, people pointed out that if we could use carbon capture and storage to take carbon out of, uh, of oil and gas, uh, gas particularly, and then use hydrogen as a source of energy uh, and bury the carbon, then that accomplishes both the, the need for ch- cheaper energy resources as well as, as uh, our environmental objectives. And that's a question. We don't know yet whether that technology could work or not, but those are, that's just an example of one direction that, that could happen. But the main point is that it's, you know, even though the resource is there, the, Alberta is going to have to continue to move to a more diversified economy and grow other sectors, which I think it can, because it has a, an amazing human capital base and People that are very well trained, very, uh, you know, have worked around the world, have a very terrific amount of skills and can get into clean energy, can get into all sorts of other things as a province. And so moving to an HST where you have a major reduction in in personal corporate income taxes uh, would also help, I think, uh, in a very significant way, the diversification uh, objectives of the province without the province having to pick which winners and losers are needed for sectors. I think it's a very entrepreneurial economy and 
people will figure it out for themselves. So I think it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. And so Phil Bizell and I in school public policy paper in 2013 looked at three and five and then eight percent Alberta HST on top of the five percent federal GST. So you're not really introducing a new tax; you're just raising an existing tax rate. And uh, I think that um, is a is a wonderful opportunity. I think for uh, for the province to uh, use that money to have a major reduction in personal corporate taxes. And what we model, as an example, which is completely distributionally neutral, would be to have a personal exemption rate of approximately $55,000. So two earners earning $110,000 would not be paying uh, any personal income tax, at least if they're under, under the amounts. If we had a low-income tax credit to help low-income people offset some of the cost of a, of a higher sales tax, and then drop the income tax rates and the corporate income tax rate by point, which is now being done by the county government. So I'm not sure one needs to do that, but uh, that would be a very significant tax advantage, as well as being distributionally neutral across all income groups. And on top of it, uh, would collect um, almost a billion dollars, uh, about $800 million from uh, People who visit the province or work temporarily in the province that currently don't contribute to the infrastructure costs of the, of the province. So, so that would be a, you know, a, a major benefit as well to the, to the province. So uh, to me, it's a, almost like a slam dunk, but it would require Albertans to give up uh, what's been a, a deeply embedded view that somehow sales taxes are a terrible thing, even though they're paying consumption taxes now as gasoline taxes and alcohol taxes and gambling revenue, <laughs> you know, alcohol markups and all sorts of other things uh, right now in the province, but somehow they just have this endemic view being against the general sales tax. But anyway, uh, it was interesting that David Kahn, uh, who was head of the Liberal Party in the last ele- provincial election, actually made a proposal basically following our plan, uh, but I do have to maybe have to update, if we ever we'll get back to this, we'd have to update the numbers uh, to show you know, what would be the implications of running this provincial sales tax. So in my view, is a long-run uh, change. You know, we, we had an, you know, an 8% sales tax that we looked at in most detail. Um, but if we, you know, as a long-run change, that would be uh, that would be huge. But of course, uh, one could do it at smaller rates and things like that. But I think right now there isn't the political consensus to, to support that. Uh, but Albertans are at least talking about it. I, I suspect they will continue talking about it. My view in public policy, you never know, all of a sudden, something that was always viewed as impossible to do because it's the political suicide tax. That's enough consensus that the government feels, yeah, no, this is an important way to go. But I do think that, that that would be really a great way of trying to try to achieve two objectives, improve growth in the economy as well as uh, diversify the economy. Final question. If you were in the room with the Prime Minister, what policy advice would you give to him during this time? Well, I think I think the federal government needs to get back onto more of a growth agenda. Some of it they have been doing, you know, such as trying to build an innovative economy and investing in things like artificial intelligence and other types of uh, innovative activity, and, and that's part of innovation agenda. But when you look at the really successful com- countries uh, with innovation and, and growth, it's a whole gambit of policies that have to be put together. They've been very weak on tax policy. I think this whole tax the rich in order to, uh, to make society less unequal. 
I think if you look at post-2009 data, we've been getting more equality than one thinks with some of the changes that have occurred. But, but certainly if you want more employment growth, but higher incomes as well, we need to do a lot more in terms of improving labor productivity. In fact, since 2015, labor productivity has been pretty flat. In fact, uh, there's been hardly any improvement. What that means is uh, when you look at labor productivity, that's the amount of, let's say, revenue. It's really value-added, but it's kind of like your revenue net of cost purchasing goods from other uh, other industries but if you look for the economy as a whole it's you know our whole the value of all our production uh, per working hour it's hardly changed at all and if it doesn't change then businesses are not going to be able to support higher incomes and in fact one of the concerns we have to remember is that the resource sector particularly uh, oil gas mining have very high amounts of um, output relative per working hour, which is why their incomes have been so much higher than uh, what's offered. And as if we move away from the resource economy, as we've been doing, then what's going to happen is that uh, we're going to have a fall, actually, in our incomes per capita as we shift these resources away from our most high-value-added sectors of the economy. So I think innovation, I think, is important. I think the federal government's got the right idea. But when you look at... uh, what really causes um, successful innovation in various countries, and Israel being a good poster child of it, but also United States and China and some other countries, is you know is you have a tax system that's uh, supportive of innovators and people that create jobs, which right now we're kind of moved away from uh, to some degree, and uh, we have a uh, set of policies in, in place to you know try to get innovation commercialized. You know, in Israel, you, you have security is a, is a huge necessity for them. And so that actually drives a lot of innovation. Uh, but there's major linkages uh, between governments, military, uh, universities, and private sector. And as a result, they've been able to uh, create a lot of new products that have come out. Uh, and, and not just in security-related areas now, but in agriculture and, and all sorts of other uh, industries. And it's a combination of policies. It's not any special tax credits or, or things like that, but it's also things that they did when they had this huge migration from former Russian or Soviet publics in Eastern and Central Europe uh, to a scientist to Israel. They had to figure out what to do with them. And they came up with this idea of giving everybody grants to start up their own businesses. And that's what led to start up Israel uh, in the innovation sphere. But they also had all these scientists. So we have a lot of, uh, Alberta's a good example of that right now. Uh, You know, we have a lot of very highly skilled individuals, and especially in that are uh, in dislocated industries uh, that have been laying off some of these very top people. And and that's the kind of policies we should be thinking about as well. So, And then finally, there's the whole government procurement side in Canada. We Government procurement requirements uh, very, very rarely focus on innovation. It was recommended by a report done by Tom Jenkins, who used to be affiliated with the School of Public Policy uh, as well. But he had, uh, he had recommended, actually, more policies be adopted by the federal government through its procurement practices to encourage innovation. In other words, it would be a significant criterion as part of procurement policies. So uh, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of various policies that can be put together that uh, really creates a, a totally innovative economy. And I think the federal government's got right, some of the right steps there, but I think they need to do a lot more. And I think they should be undertaking, I think, a significant tax reform that uh, moves away from a lot of these targeted support programs and corporate welfare programs and, and try to do the usual thing, broaden tax bases, get rid of some of the grants and, uh, and lower tax rates, which is, I think, a much better approach.
Well, thank you so much for coming on to Pod Bless Canada. And uh, it was a great talk. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you.